Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered for Monday, January 13th, 2020. Roland is traveling today. I'm your host, Dr. Avis Jones-Dweaver. Cory Booker, the last black man standing in the 2020 Democrat, well, almost next to last, right? In the 2020 Democratic presidential race has dropped out. So much for diversity, right? Uh, we have questions for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. His record as an advocate for black people? Hmm, apparently it's not what he says. We'll tell you why. A recent poll shows that six in 10 black Democratic voters, contrary to popular opinion, identify as moderate or conservative. We'll break that down. A black Milwaukee woman dies after waiting in an emergency room for hours. And Trump's latest environmental rollback could hurt people of color and poor people the most. Uh, plus, former NFL player Matthew Cherry gets an Oscar nomination for Hair Love. The children's book turned animated short. We'll show you Roland's interview with him from earlier this year. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. 
Cory Booker announced today that he is dropping out of the race for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Here's his announcement video. I am literally here on this stage right now because 50 years ago, there was a lawyer on a couch who changed his life, changed his mind to get up and start representing families, one of them mine, who were discriminated against. Ours is the story of the faith we have had in one another. We know beating Donald Trump is the floor, it is not the ceiling. It gets us out of a valley, it does not get us to the mountaintop. It's not going to be a referendum on who he is. It's going to be a referendum on who we are and who we are to each other and for each other. We need all Democrats together to call to this country, to stand together, to work together, to rise together. Today, I'm suspending my campaign for president with the same spirit with which it began. It is my faith in us faith in us together as a nation, that we share common pain and common problems that can only be solved with a common purpose and a sense of common cause. So now I recommit myself to the work. I can't wait to get back on the campaign trail and campaign as hard as I can for whoever is the eventual nominee and for candidates up and down the ballot. But for now, I want to say thank you. Campaigning over this last year has been one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. Meeting you, meeting people across this country who believe, who know that we may have challenges right now in our nation, but together we will rise. Although I'm shocked that that could like be a commercial for the actual campaign, uh, it's interesting that Booker's withdrawal follows former Cabinet Secretary Julian Casto and leaves a less diverse field with Representative Tulsi Gabbard, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, and former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick as the only people of color candidates remaining in the race. Joining me now to talk about this is Derek Holly, president of Reaching America, and political analyst Amisha Cross, political commentator and democratic strategist, and civil rights attorney Robert Patilio. My goodness, I was shocked with the level of production. <laughs> he had some money left over. I mean, that's what it was. Well, but I, I, it. I think the it, issue... His strongest fundraising was in the fourth quarter. Yeah, that's actually his yeah. strongest... Um, but I think the issue is exactly that video is the reason that he's dropping out of the campaign. Hmm. He never gave this race a raison d'etre. He never gave a Cassia Belli. He never gave a reason that he's running. Yeah. And through the entire 30-second well-produced ad, I have no idea what he's running for. He never articulated to the American people what the issues are he's running for besides I hate Donald Trump. Well, Bernie Sanders, you know exactly what Bernie Sanders is running for. With Elizabeth Warren, with Joe Biden, you know what they are running for. But because he was never able to articulate the message, he was always kind of a... a a squishy candidate. Whether, Wasn't he the feel-good candidate? He, you know, he, was, he, he was, was trying to be a unity candidate. on Twitter candidate, yeah. and that's the problem. seems like he's yelling at you, too. With, well, Corey Bernie? Bernie. Bernie. Corey, Bernie. Corey Booker, you don't think he just is Corey talking? yelling? No. That's Bernie. Corey, Corey was trying to be... Bernie is scolding you all the damn time. Corey was trying to be the unity candidate. He was trying to bring the party together that has since had a lot of fragmentation. I think some of that is pushed by the AOC crowd and, and, and also Bernie and, and Warren when we see, you know, the growth of the far left. He was trying to bring them together with the moderates to show that, hey, we need to do this and fight against our... The the real detriment to America, which is but Donald Trump. But you think he wasn't real. I think that was a part of the problem, 
and, 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 and he exactly. also happened to be everybody's third or fourth choice candidate. I think but, that but, that was also an issue. But, there are a lot of people who are sad that he's gone, but when you ask those same people, he was further down that list in terms of their priority. But the, mm -hmm. the problem the problem is that you can be a unity candidate, but you have to stand for something. Like, you have to say, these are the things that Cory Booker 100% stands for. This is what a Cory Booker presidency will, will mean, and he never did that. He wanted to I don't think that that's true. Cory Booker, Corey Booker had stood for the same things that he stood for the entire time he's been in the Senate as well as prior. He stood on criminal justice reform. That's something he can stand on. He has a mm -hmm. record on it. It got lost in the wash. I think that part of the reason was, again, we are, we are in a race that had way too many people in the beginning, yeah. and it was very hard for him to get that, that level of opportunity and to get his voice out there in that way. It wasn't that he didn't have these values, principles, and specific policies that he has enacted that to stand on, because he did. You know what's interesting? If I wonder if Barack Obama would have been in this race, would he have dropped off too? No. Because, because, because and, and and the reason why I asked that, the reason why I asked that is because you're right. It's so many people in this race. It's so broad. And the thing that really got his candidacy going was when he won Iowa. I'm not sure he would have made it to Iowa with this level of competition. Well, the reason why I this, want to say is the reason this level of competition and this level, level of fragmentation in the Democratic right. Party. I think also, too, something that is, goes unspoken is you got to have that it factor. Mm -hmm. I don't think Cory Booker had that it factor. Obama has the it factor. He still has that it factor. So I think when you start looking at that, I mean, that plays but, a huge but part. But there was a time and where Democrats heralded Cory Booker as the person who was going to have that it factor. Remember him coming off of his own DNC wowing speech that everyone was really excited no, about? No, I, I don't think... <laughs> no, <laughs> there was that time when he had that halo the, over his the, head where people the, wanted the to see him go. When he was Spartacus mayor. Moment, no, 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 no. Years ago. When people about loved Mayor Booker. Yes, but Senator I agree. Booker, I think, they is, is this a maybe a watered down I, the, version the re, of Mayor Booker? The reason I think that President Obama would have absolutely had the same success is if you look at that 2008 field, it was far more formidable than this 2020 field. America you had, didn't look like it. Yeah, 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 I'm not talking about the quality I, of the candidates. Yeah, but, I'm just talking about the number of. But candidates. even then, you had I Dennis Kucinich running. You had Chris Dodd. You had Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton. You had uh, Bill Richardson. You had a large, diverse field. And President Obama, simply put, ran a better ground game. He ran a better campaign. Cory Booker ran a poor campaign. But he also, and and, 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 and you're right. To, to his point, he probably still could have, you know, risen above the crop. But I think that there is something to be said about a race that has 20 plus people in it. This is the largest that we've but ever seen in America. All the 20 people yeah. we know for. Let, let's be fair. Exactly. Like, nobody's talking about, you know, Steve Bullock. Like, do, do they say they're running, but nobody really cares about the campaign. But, you know, uh, Obama also didn't have to run against any billionaires. I mean, it's, it's a completely different dynamic right now. And I really think there needs to be some more discussion. I mean, what do you think about the Democratic Party, I mean, maybe even changing. We've talked about this for years. It never happens. But having two of the whitest states in the nation be the, the states that, in essence, weeds the feel out for us, it's ridiculous I when you look at the, the complexion of the country, not to mention the Democratic Party. But people make that argument often, but we had that same one when Obama won, and Obama also won Iowa. So I'm like, they were just as white eight years ago as they are today. Right. So I think that, you know, that, that goes to the it factor. It also goes to his strategy on the ground. It also goes to him being a dynamic candidate. But I also feel like there has to be an understanding that not only the candidate's message matters, but also who that candidate is matters. Mm -hmm. Obama had a lot of different factors that you don't necessarily see every day commonly on either side of the political aisle. And, uh, and, and mm -hmm. uh, just to chime in, I, I 
also think that Iowa and New Hampshire mean a lot less now than they meant meant 20 or 30 years ago. What you we're, they mean less? Far less now, because yeah. let's let's understand, nobody really cares who wins Iowa. You just need to place. If you're top three, top four in Iowa, you're fine. New Hampshire... Fun, funders do care. Oh, well, no, no. You, <laughs> it, if it you're waiting to Iowa to get mechanism. your money, it's too late. But if you got enough money... I Bloomberg. You yeah, you don't need to worry. Or, or, or even it. Joe Biden, who has the name recognition, has the money. He doesn't have to win anything until South Carolina, and he will be absolutely fine. So I think Iowa and New Hampshire have kind of taken themselves out of that Pimrose positioning of actually mattering in national elections. It's nice. It's, if you're going to be an insurgent candidate, it's a good thing to win, but it's not. It's by no means a, uh, a fait accompli if you lose. Look at uh, Giuliani's strategy in 2016, which was just go camp out in Florida and hope you can win there. So I think more candidates are ignoring those early states. Uh, you know, but it, I think it drives the narrative, though. I mean, every day, if I see another damn poll about what's <laughs> going on, I'm going to scream, and I'm because I'm like, I don't really care what they think. Mm -hmm. But, you know, on the other side of the coin, if you're looking at a Cory Booker, if you're looking at what happened with Kamala, if you're looking at Duvall, who, unfortunately, it looks like nobody's really talking about at all, um, the reality is that I think any other black candidate that comes behind Obama is going to have a much more difficult time that's to say it, earning the trust of the black vote. I mean, and what are your thoughts about that? I think that's 100% factual. Um, we've seen all of the postmortems, you know, years years after Obama, and there are, is a concerted amount of African Americans who aren't necessarily pleased with where America is today. In retrospect, they don't right. think that we got as far as they would have hoped for. They don't think that the bill of goods that was sold during that campaign they actually saw on the back end. And I think that, with that being said, the belief that we're going to have a magical black candidate and he's going to change the structure structural racism across America, I don't think that that's there anymore. Mm -hmm. There was a point in time where representation was enough. Mm -hmm. We were all just happy to have a black face in the White House. I think now that that's happened, now we are looking more towards policy, more towards not just simply falling into the wash. And it's a little bit like the like the Bulls after Jordan retired. Nobody wants to be the person who follows Jordan. <laughs> you don't want to be Eddie Curry. You don't want to be Tyson Chandler. You don't want to be Jalen Rose. But it's it also a good a thing, though, Robert, because it is set. It, it has set up a dichotomy that says that beyond representation not being the only thing that matters, that you have to continually push for policy change and advocate Absolutely. for things specific to Well, I don't think black people voted for Trump, for, uh, for Trump, good Lord, for Obama because he was black. I mean, to me, that's kind of like... Mm -hmm. how yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I think that they because set him up. They, they, what happened was the reason why he won... I, after he won Iowa, then they saw that him as a realistic candidate that could actually win. And I think they did go with their heart, and they liked what he was saying. But I, I, I think that, you know, ultimately, um, at first, I th the bottom line is black people are very pragmatic voters. We don't want to throw away our vote. Right. I think that has well, a lot uh, to do with why Biden is doing so I, well, not because black people digit. love him, Look, but because they think that he probably has the best chance of I winning. I walked through the snow to go to Obama headquarters on West Adams Street to do phone banking yeah. because he was black. <laughs> <laughs> Obama receives I don't know what percent. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the losing talking about. Well, you're right. I mean, I, it, it, he, it became a movement unto yeah, himself. But what I'm saying is that he had to, he did have to prove himself mm -hmm. first that he was viable because it's not like he's the first black candidate to ever run for president. So, you know, it, it, it is... And I, most I, black people were in the Hillary camp before right. Iowa. Exactly. Absolutely. Well into the Hillary camp. And so I think what happened was, you know, once they saw that he was viable... I think there was a head versus heart moment. Mm -hmm. And once they saw that he was viable, people were like, okay, I can actually go with my heart mm -hmm. as well as my head because I think he now has a chance. And you're right, he became the movement. Yeah. He became the mm -hmm. movement. Yeah. But what do you think about Duvall? That's supposed to be his boy. Is he going to be able to... 
Who? Mad, get some sort of magic <laughs> out of this? Oh, oh, just, uh, but but just, just as we said with Kamal, or just as we said with Corey, what is Duvall's purpose in running? What is, right. what is his reasoning? What is his what, what makes you different than the other 30 people who put their hat uh, their hats in the ring to to be a Democrat? I don't think anybody has a clear understanding of that, and that's why he hasn't broken out. He hasn't gotten the media attention. He hasn't gotten the fundraising dollars. It's a very good question as to what exactly his plan was, and the national media is not paying attention. Black media is not paying attention. Um, oh, I'm not quite sure what his plan is. Yeah, it's also the timing. So yeah. you to jump in late. You can do that if you're a billionaire. Mm -hmm. right. It's hard to jump in late when you're not. It's hard to jump in late when yeah. you're trying to build a campaign infrastructure and everybody's basically already chosen which camp they want to be a part of when it comes to campaign workers. People who are devoting their time, their energy, their own resources to get this thing off the ground. He's going to have a really hard time. Um, we've already seen it for the uh, for the other candidates of color who are no longer in the race. Right. And Many of them had longer records in, in, in politics and policy at the national level than he does. Yeah. So I think that there is, um, it, it was an interesting thought process for him to jump in at the time he did. But I'm also wondering now what that, you know, watching Corey leave, what is he thinking at this point? Right. But he would say, hey, I'm only the second elected black governor in history post-reconstruction. I, you know, I jumped in late because my, my, my wife came down with cancer. I have legitimate reasons about these choices. But for some reason, he's not catching fire. Because no one knows, and plus, he doesn't have the money either. It's right. it, 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 traction. He doesn't have it. It's, it's too late. And I don't think his campaign, again, he has no substance. And he hasn't talked about any any kind of what 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 is what is this what are his policies and what does he stand for? We would know if he had the money. Like he has <laughs> <laughs> with all this stuff on it. No one knows because he it's not able to be promoted. Yeah, so it all boils down to the money. He needs the money, honey. I guess he needs some money. Well, we're gonna come back right after the break and talk about Mayor Pete. You wanna check out Rollerbart Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. So Mayor Pete Buttigieg hasn't really caught on in the African-American community. <laughs> with his 2020 bid. His team did a poll that suggested that it was because of his sexual orientation. Uh-huh. But that's not the case. There are several things in his background that are extremely questionable as it relates to African Americans. For example, a recent article in The Root revealed that when Pete Buttigieg took office in January 2012, after winning the city's first open mayoral election in 24 years, South Bend actually had three African Americans in highly visible positions in pu public leadership, including the mayor's assistant, Lynn Coleman, the fire chief, Howard, Buchanan and police chief Daryl Boykins. Within three months, three months now, all three were gone. And on a recent visit to a homeless shelter in Watts, California, he was greeted by a dozen Black Lives Matter protesters, many from his hometown, who called him anti-black and anti-poor. So, do we need to dig deeper into Mayor Pete's background? What do y'all think? I, I think you absolutely dig deeper, but I do always hold have cause when somebody suddenly starts rising in the polls and then all of a sudden all this racist stuff just pops up. Just like this week Elizabeth Warren suddenly says that Bernie says that a woman can't win. 
where was all this the last year and a half when he was running? Mayor Pete has his problems when it comes to African Americans. He did, tried to out reach out to black voters by drinking 40 ounces on a YouTube series. That was a poor idea. He <laughs> tried to reach out to black people by eating fried. Wait a minute, wait, stop, 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 stop. And Elizabeth, I missed that. You and Elizabeth Warren just hosted a fried chicken thing for black people too. So, yeah, so I mean, if we're gonna talk about missteps, we need to count Lord. all of the missteps. Yeah, so, no, we, no, he did not. No, this, I'll, I'll show it to you. Yeah, but look, the, the problem is, wow, this points one big problem, which is that many of these candidates, even though the rank and file of the Democratic Party, people who vote every election cycle, are older black women. The people who are knocking on doors, usually younger black people, the people running these campaigns are very rarely African-Americans, and that's why they don't know how to reach out to black folks, because they don't have black folks around them. So I think Mayor Pete's record is absolutely something that's fair. But we have to also look into the fact that these campaigns are not being run by people who look at us, look like us. The polling, the messaging, the strategy is not being set by us. The pollsters, the um, male people are yeah. not being set by us, and that's yeah. why you're getting lily-white policies. Well, here's the thing. Well, here's my thought about Mayor Pete, and I would love your reaction to this, Amisha. Uh, I don't think it's that, you know, it's just popped up. I think it's just that, quite frankly, the mainstream media loves themselves some Mayor Pete. It's just like, you know, Miss Jenkins from, you know, Martin. Don't say nothing bad about Miss Jenkins. Okay, don't say nothing bad about Mayor Pete. Right. They will not release anything. Anytime you see all of these videos coming out with him, insulting the intelligence of black people, essentially, uh, all of the nefarious things that he did apparently in Saint and in, in his particular small town with regards to the black community there none of that is coming from the Washington Post the New York Times Politico none of them are coming from those spaces they're coming from places like the root places that you are or more independent organizations who are the only ones apparently involved in investigative journalism so what is I, happening I would, I with the mainstream media Harris, investigative journalism well, what, but why, why, how, how come none media. of these have come up from the mainstream media but they are all over themselves, for example, with all the hit pieces with Kamala Harris. Why do you think that Mayor Pete gets a free ride? Now, I will say that I think that Kamala Harris was treated unfairly by the mainstream media. With Mayor Pete, I, I don't think that there's a free ride at all. What I think happens is that we've seen him continue to grow throughout this campaign process and continue to get further and further ahead in the polls. He was flying under the radar for months in the beginning because, honestly, nobody thought he was going to be able to make it to where he is right now. They didn't. People didn't think that he was going to be a mainstay player in this race at all. They counted him out as a small-town mayor, somebody with very little experience, thought that he would be a blip and he would be gone. Um, I, I think that right now you're seeing mainstream media be more attentive because, to be honest, he's got more people who are surrounding him. He's got greater stance. He's making the fundraising dollars. He's really taken a... He's really carved a space for himself throughout this election process. To be fair, though, I think that pieces like Michael Harriet's, and, and if you've been following him, I know that a lot of, a lot of black people have, um, he has made a concerted effort to go after Mayor Pete and almost Mayor Pete solely. Um, yes, he has written some, some investigative pieces on a few other candidates as well, but when it comes to the fervor, when it comes to the amount of articles, this has been a him and Mayor Pete. And that's a very interesting thing. And Mayor Pete has taken to actually go and have a conversation with yeah, him. I there was a phone call between them. Um, and we and we see more and more of these pieces from him come out, and many of which have also had particular elements of them debunked. And nobody is talking about that either. What, so I what think was that debunked? Very, I what think was it's very important that folks realize that. What was debunked? So when he makes these statements about how many, how, how little support that he has, how many people are against him in South Bend, there are so many people who have come out who have been okay, but nothing has been no, nothing has been debunked with regards to the facts of what actually happened in South Bend. 
when we're talking about the, the, the officers that you were saying that got removed, um, the ones who were in leadership, yeah. we know that that happened. That's, that's right. public knowledge. It's okay. been there. And, and the that fact, wasn't something that Michael exactly. Harriet said that nobody didn't already know. Exactly. That they so that's factual. And when we talk about what he did with the former sheriff there and the tapes that he claims that he And we have release. no way of knowing whether they were heard or whether they weren't. Okay. So this is a, this is a leap that Harriet is taking. And leading along black people who are only looking at this as one as, as, as their source and taking it as fact. Mm -hmm. So it's it's I just find it I just find it very interesting though that may that do you think it's just a coincidence that all of a sudden all these black people are no longer employed once he becomes mayor ninety days later? No, I don't. I don't think anything's coincidental. I think that there was a and, and anybody looking at it knows that there was a tragic situation that was happening within that within that police department that should have been handled specifically. I can't say you know without full knowledge of the details of the case, which I don't think that we currently have. Right. Um, a lot of that is sealed away anyway, so I don't think anyone can make those those types of logical leaps. Okay, and the, and the fact that he claims that he doesn't, he didn't understand that there was segregation in public schools in his own city, you think that's okay? There is segregation. As somebody who comes out of the education policy framework and has worked at the and national the level and, and at the local <laughs> level, I can tell you there are black mayors yeah. across this country who don't know that segregation is happening in their cities as well. Are you serious? Dead serious. Again, really? I have fought That they don't know that it's coming on or they're not country. doing anything about it. it. That's, that's two different things. Almost I mean, if, if you are having Mayor Pete come out and say, and he's lived there all his darn life. Right. I mean, there's so many things. There, I mean, there's so many things. And the reason why I'm just kind of, it seems like I, maybe I'm picking on, but the reason why I am is because I believe that mainstream media has been giving him a pass. There you go. They have there, not been criticizing him at all. And at the same time, they have been disparaging the black community by saying you. the reason why we don't like him is because he is homosexual. The reality is that we have critical thinking skills. And we see what has happened in South Bend. And if he wants to extrapolate what he's done to South Bend to the rest of the black population, I sure as hell don't want him as president. I just agree with you on everything you just said. Because first of all, there, he, does, he, does, he has a very small black constituent in constituency. Where is he what? Where is he got besides South and Bend? He has been able to build the I'm following. Sorry. He's been able to build the campaign strategy. He's been able to build because the he's fundraising a white apparatus. Boy. Nobody, there are a nobody other than race, a white a boy with that little... Who have been able to do what he's been able to do. My, I, exactly, but Period. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that you cannot find a black person, or even a woman probably, with that scant a bit of experience being taken seriously AOC is being be taken seriously right now and making and she, she is she is fundraising more than anybody me. else in the DCCC I, and not giving to the DCCC she's not running as for a president that, that you're, no, just, but she's you're, going you're to bringing be, that out of no, left field no what I'm saying is that I am you saying say nobody has ever run she ran with zero experience. She was a bartender. You're not and listening to what I'm saying. I'm saying run for president of the United States, not run for any office. That's not what the point is. I'm saying no one with that scant level of experience, besides a white boy, Maybe we're can run for, can I finish my sentence, can run for president of the United States of America and be able to raise millions because of that background. And Nobody I hope that a black person is going to be able to prove this wrong. I, I would love to I see do. it. But I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. And people Maybe didn't you think will. they'd see a, a black president in their lifetime either. And we saw that happen two terms. I would love to see it as many as un unqualified white boys get stuff. This is normalcy. And this is just the, the recent version of it in presidential politics. You touched on it. I thought you were going to go all the way with it. Um, I think he's been chosen. Yeah. The media has selected this boy. And no matter what, he's going... And that's why he is right, right, right now. And he's got all these major fundraisers because he's been selected already. Yeah. And I think the fact that he is uh, gay plays into his favor right now. I agree. 
I do agree because it's another first. Absolutely. It is a first. And they're pushing it. It is a right way now. to say this is a first. That's right. Where they can privilege that over the fact that he is also That's riding exactly the right. coattails of white male privilege to get to where he is. To he is not qualified. To be the, if the level, man can't even beat not. damn Tam, Tom Perez. Come on. How the hell is he going to be president of the United 8, States? 8,000 people vote for you your entire life. Now you're going to... You, now you're we have a man in the White House right now who never had anybody vote for him in his life before joined, before becoming president of the United States. And you see so where we are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's my point exactly. That is my point exactly. I do not want that replicated on the Democratic side. <laughs> Keep my ass out of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Another recent survey shows that... Joe Biden holds a wide lead among black voters in the Democratic presidential race. The survey also offers insights into the ideology of diversity within the black community. For example, six in 10 black Democratic voters identify as moderate or conservative. Biden gets 58% support among that group, compared with 14% for Saunders and 8% for Warren. The survey was done by the Washington Post and the nonpartisan research firm IPOS. Ipsos? I think Ipsos. it's Ipsos. Ipsos, okay? So, you know, I'm really not too surprised by that survey because, I mean, we know that the black community historically um, is conservative when it comes to social stances on a lot of issues, particularly because of our religiosity. But when it comes to policy, we tend to be more on the liberal side because of the way in which we need to rely on laws in order to protect us from a oppressive system. Anything from that? scares you or well, surprises you? Oh, no, no, nothing surprises me. I think we have to understand that um, for far too long political science was ta taught on the political spectrum, that there's a left and that there's a right. That's not how politics work. It's a more of a cloud. It's a nebula. Uh, none of us think, simply say, well, is this right here on the political spectrum and that's where I'm at on all issues. You know, they're, someone like me, I'm pro-life but also pro-civil rights. I'm pro-gay marriage but also low taxes. Uh, I, I think we all exist with this double consciousness where when it comes to politics and that's being distilled down. I think that what the problem that many of the Democrats in the field are having right now is instead of listening to what black voters want, they want to tell them what they want. That's and that's why I, and that's why when you ask Elizabeth Warren the question about, well, what are you going to do about uh, to help the African-American community, she starts talking about illegal immigration or she starts talking about right. climate change or the Green New Deal because those are the places where they're comfortable and that is what they, they want us to fall into the boxes they put us in right. instead of simply listening to the words we are telling them. And then when you don't get the black turnout that Barack Obama got in 2012, you blame it on black folks for, well, why aren't black people turning out? You ain't give us nothing to vote for. Right. Why, are, why aren't you standing up and getting out there? Well, what, what you got for us? You know, because right. I, they talked about reparations, what, two months in the campaign? Mm -hmm. And then when they finally got to the debates, it all went away, the entire conversation. And every black man is not a criminal. So criminal justice reform is not the only issue that we care about. <laughs> right. We have economic issues, we have family issues, we have social issues, we have all sorts of things that we would like to do that don't involve prison. So if that's the only campaign talking point that you have, if the minute that someone says black people, you think criminals, that's your problem right there. <laughs> I, I would be interested in seeing the cross tabs for that Ipsos poll, just yeah. because what we do know is that, uh, by and large, African Americans have always been um, more conservative on social issues, as you right. spoke of, but also um, as it as it leans towards their religiosity. But it takes a major break when you're talking about Gen X. Um, mm -hmm. When you're talking about Gen right. X. 
at the end of the day, like the younger you go, the more you see a further push to the left right. and a lot different from the generations that are beyond us. So I do think that in, in terms of how a lot of the candidates are looking at the political sphere around black people now, it is more so towards this up and coming generation of black people, a lot younger black people than they are looking at your traditional African-American voters who have not changed that much in right. terms of the policies and the platforms that they stand for. Yeah. But uh, the, the I, I, thing is, uh, oh, oh, sorry, real quick. Everybody's liberal when you're young because you ain't got no real bills. You get a mortgage and all of a sudden you start believing in uh, laws a lot more. You, you get some property that's going to get stolen. You, we need more cops all of a sudden. You know, you, so you get more conservative when you get older. So, 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 yes, of course, Gen Z right now is very liberal. Let's take everybody's money and build a unicorn castle or something. Like, no. But when is your money they take you? Like, hold, hold on real quick. What, what are we spending, 50 trillion on what? So I, I think what we have to understand is black folks aren't just socially conservative, as they say. We're also economically conservative on a lot of issues. Right. The next time when your cousin come home asking for money, see if your granddad don't sound like he in the tea party. <laughs> and that's what happens. Because we are also economically conservative. And I think the Democrats have for far too long depended on the fact that Republicans like to be racist to, uh, to kind of float their but, policies. But I don't because, think the Ipsos poll shows or that Democrats will go and jump ship and go vote for Republicans we'll stay at home. all. That's at the, all. Two options I, are stay it, home it is or not. vote. But because at the end of the day, again, this is where Democrats have always been, by and large, and still vote Democrat. I think that what we have right now is a party that has become so fragmented when it comes to the far left versus the moderates, and we're seeing that bubble up, that... Again, look, there's a reason why there are double-digit leads for Joe Biden, and it's because people feel comfortable in that moderate, more conservative lane when it comes to um, when it comes to health care, when it comes to um, economic moves and, and employment, when it comes to making sure that you know your your housing affordability is there. They understand his plan. They want to make sure that we're not you know putting future generations into multitudes of debt by going above and beyond when it comes to free college for everyone or free, you know, medical services for everyone. They want to make sure that, you know, we're reeling this in a bit. Or it could just be they are more practical in terms of what they believe is realistic. I mean, let, let's just be honest. I feel like Bernie Sanders is like the Easter Bunny. I, I mean, honestly, <laughs> when you when you look at his, I'm just, just, hey, I'm going to give away all this I'm stuff. Yeah, in every yeah, pop he's, he's not, yeah, else. it's like he's not, he, this is, he, it would not, he would not be a king. I mean, this would have to get through Congress. His legislative history is like thin as can be. So even as a senator, he hasn't shown the ability to be able to lead legislation through Congress that actually becomes law. So, you know, I, I think what is going on here also is not so much it, I think a critique that I think that a lot of maybe more seasoned people are looking at this situation that maybe young people look at it very differently is that we understand what it will actually take to get mm -hmm. that through. And frankly, we think he's lying to you exactly. and selling you a bill exactly. of goods, exactly. claiming that he's going to give you all this stuff that yes. he has no ability you to can't. do. Mm -hmm. you can't and so it's a, it's a bit of practicality that I think is showing between the generations. I mean, I don't know. I, I just think to go along with um, these guys are so far to the left, as you said, none of this will ever happen. It will ever happen. And so I think that, along with the fact that these polls have come out recently, we just talked about this last week on the show, that more blacks, it goes to what they're saying, are conservative and also favor of Donald Trump right now. And so... And that's that, a very interesting when you break down by sex as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, well, you know, right. on, on that point, I, I made a prediction like three years ago now that I thought Donald Trump could get close to 30% of the black male vote. 
I've seen nothing to knock that off right now. Exactly. Like, I, what you, no, what you yeah, don't what you don't see from Democratic candidates is any agenda for black men going forward. Right. The only person who had one was Cory Booker, and he dropped out today. And I, I think the issue also with the with the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world is black folks live through government giving us stuff a lot. We live through uh, government cheese. We live through uh, welfare. We live through public housing projects. We don't really like that much stuff being run by the government because it's usually not the best thing on earth. So when you have a candidate like Donald Trump who's talking about opportunity zones, who's talking about criminal justice reform, who has record low black unemployment, who has uh, record high stock market, the uh, uh, your 401k is doing great, and then Bernie Sanders is saying, I'm going to take all that away. I'm going to give you government housing again. We're like, well, you mean what's like what, what do you mean government housing i think it's resonating i just think there's a lot going on right now and the dems are so far so far to the left with some of these policies and so um and i just they're, they're, they offer false hope and just unrealistic outcomes and i think a lot of us now i think we're wise enough to see that well, these policies will not they will well, never go forward. what's really interesting though i'd love your opinion on this amisha if you look at for example if you compare a bernie sanders versus elizabeth warren for example, she did pull back a little bit, for example, on her Medicare for All um, as originally espoused. You know, she got a lot of heat about how are you going to pay for it, which Bernie's just like, well, fuck it. I'll, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. I'm sorry, God. He don't even like, hey, I don't know. Don't ask me. But, you know, she actually came up with a real plan, right? And then when people saw it, they got a little spooked. And then she said, okay, well, I'm going to phase it in. And since that has happened... Uh, her support has dropped. So, you know, what, is, what do you think is the dynamic there around when you are actually asking people to be very transparent about how you would do the things? How can Bernie have Medicare for all, get rid of student loans? You know, what is the other thing he wants? It's like another big thing. It's so many big green things. New it's like deal. a Green, green New, deal. New Deal. Everything. It's like, I, I know that we're spending trillions of dollars on, you know, defense that is absolutely freaking ridiculous. Um, but he, it, what really, to tell you the truth, be perfectly honest, and I'll, I'll shut up and let you speak. The thing that really pissed me off about Bernie was in the last cycle, when he was asked about reparations, his immediate answer was, oh, it's unrealistic. I'm like, nothing you're saying is realistic. <laughs> if it's that's your standard, you might as well be for reparations. So ever since then, I've just kind of canceled Bernie. But let me just ask you, you know, what do you think is the dynamic there between then the Bernie's of the world and the Elizabeth Warren's of the world, specifically with the millennials and Generation X's? So Bernie and Elizabeth Warren actually have a very similar lane. Um, up until recently, when they kind of tried to um, carve out a space that made them look slightly different. Um, they stand together when it comes to uh, Medicare for All. Uh, I will say that Bernie definitely had a smarter answer to how it would be paid for than Elizabeth Warren originally did, and that's why she got a lot of the pushback that she did. So how did he say it was going to be paid Democrats. for? He admitted that the money was going to come off the, off the backs of a lot of the middle class as well. Mm -hmm. um, she refused to make that announcement. Right. You're like, you know, it's not just going to come from the top 1% or this wealth tax. Right. Some of that is going to trickle down to the middle class as well, and she has to be honest about that. When she decided to finally release how she was going to phase it in, once again, she got pressed on it. You can't do this your first day in office. Right. Because that was also something that she had initially projected out. Um, when it got to... He just said that he was going to do it earlier, the first day in office on day one. He's going to... I'm like... Really? Yeah. When we talk about he this realism, that. then there has to be that understanding that big pieces like that aren't done on day one. Right. Well, and uh, we know what the makeup of the Senate is. We know that congressionally this is going to be a very hard process. We know that this is going to be a very costly process, a total overhaul of the system. And I think that when it comes to people like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, there has to be an understanding amongst the, the general electorate population that 
of just how government actually works. Right. Because they both have said a lot of things. Absolutely. But, but, but on, to on, Absolutely. The, on the same point, even on the Medicare for All, let's just take that in a, in a silo. Barack Obama had a majority in the House of Representatives. He had a liberal co uh, Supreme Court. Yeah. He had 60 votes in the United States Senate, and we couldn't get a public Still. option yeah. pushed yes, through. Yeah, that's a good point. So the idea that all of a sudden we're going to go from public option to Medicare yeah, for All and Green New Deal and all this other stuff, everybody knows it don't make no sense. And then when Elizabeth Warren, the one thing you have to do, and, and most men know this, once you start lying, you got to ride the lie out to the grave. <laughs> like you, you don't just stop lying midstream. Whatever that lie is, I told you when we met, that's the lie I'm telling you now. That girl you saw me wolf in 02, that was my cousin. And she my cousin today in 2020. That's always going to be the lie. You don't stop lying in the, the middle of your damn lie. You're going to do, I'm going to stop lying, I'm going to tell you what it's really going to cost. You don't do that. You see what happens? You keep lying. So with this show, women also get relationship advice. Exactly. Okay, um, that's, that's very insightful. Thank you. I'm going to keep that in mind. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. All right, so next let's talk about Trump's proposed overhaul of environmental law, which aims to streamline project reviews. But those changes most likely impact minority communities and those with high poverty rates the most. The White House detailed a sweeping proposal to revamp the National Environmental Policy Act. Critics of the plan say that with polluting industries already more likely to set up shop in minority communities, as well as those with poverty, those same areas will bear the brunt of the changes. I'm telling you, I just feel like they are doing everything they can to completely destroy this country while they can. I mean, nothing has been left off the table. Absolutely, but we, we know that conservatives, uh, even before the Trump administration, have been picking away at the EPA and environmental protections for the longest. Um, the interesting thing about his administration doing it is that he also does the double speak about how much he cares about the environment oh, at the same time. He lies time. all the time. We know that African-American communities are suffering the most. We know yeah. that because a lot of our schools were actually built on former factories. Yeah. Um, we know that because our air is of the lowest quality. Um, we know that because a lot of our communities were actually those major factory towns. Right. Um, African-American communities cannot afford to sit idly by and be quiet when it comes to environmental issues. Right. Um, I have heard several people say that's not their top concern. And, it's, and, I, and I can understand that. From an economic perspective, if you're an African-American in this country, um, oftentimes people don't tie those two together. But from a health perspective, because health care does happen to be a top priority for them as well, mm -hmm. environment ties very logically into that. When we're talking right. about asthma, when we're talking about all of these child respiratory issues, when we're talking about mothers who have their children early, um, mm -hmm. the, pre -birth, the, the birth rates in terms of the weight at birth and them being lower now than they were a generation, two generations ago, all of that goes back to a lot of our failed environmental policies and environmental action that has not affected the black community at the rates that it should have. And I think that this administration, first and foremost, doesn't care, but also we have to inform the black community more about the direct cost of not getting involved in environmental action. I, I think there's space between saying someone doesn't care about the environment and also some of the more extreme environmental regulations that were campering there business. Let's understand that if you gave the California far-left liberals control of all the environmental regulations, gas would be about $25 a gallon right now. Let's understand that they had well, waterway restrictions, where if you uh, had a uh, a farm that was way off of the, a public waterway, they would declare that public land and give you two years of paperwork in order to just have irrigation for your field. They, they had so many regulations that were cutting out on factory jobs, mining jobs, uh, coal production, all those other things. So we can't throw away the economic future for people who are working class. Who, a lot of those who work, move because it's but, cheaper but, to do but, the work. But hold on. We're, we're talking about those good old-fashioned 
old-fashioned uh, blue-collar jobs where you can come out of high school, work there, put your kids through college, take care of families. But these are the same families. businesses that but, were dumping but, their pollution into the water. But this is why we... This kids are drinking it in the this community. This is why we have to have a balance on those things because we go too far to the left. Then you shut down the, the economy in order for some you know, delusional environmental, we're going to save the penguins in 150 years. Well, if we go too far to the right, then we end up with uh, brownfield. Wow. So let's find a place in the middle. Well, tell the people in Flint that, I guess. Uh, one yes? of the issues, and yeah, certainly we have to have regulations, obviously. Mm -hmm. But one of the issues that we work on the most, and I've said this many times, is energy poverty. And no one's talked about that. Mm. Okay, energy poverty exists when individuals or families spend upwards of 25 to 30 percent of their total income on the electric bill. Mm -hmm. I'm giving myself an unselfish plug, but if you go to our website, energypoverty.org, on our homepage, there's a website where you can scroll over and it shows the level of poverty that people are paying for their electric bill in every state. Mm -hmm. And you have some states that people are paying upwards of 50, 60, 70 percent of their total income on their electric bill because they don't have access to affordable electricity. And so now when you start talking about these individuals, these same communities, these people, African Americans, are the ones who are struggling the most to pay, with their, pay their electric bills. Mm -hmm. And we all know somebody who struggles each month to keep up with the rising cost of their energy. Mm -hmm. Somebody get Christmas presents because they had to pay the electric bill. And so when you start looking at these policies and regulations that are holding up pipelines, i.e. the uh, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline in Virginia right now. And I was, I've gone down and I've given testimony and everything and spoken at that place. And the people down there that are holding these up, these environmentalists, that are down there screaming environmental racism, not one of them were black. And so how can you scream environmental racism and talk about that particular issue if you not if you haven't experienced any racism, and so when you start when you start hearing about these environmentalists, it's not black people out there raising these signs. There is now well, I agree with well. you, Misha, that you we should be out there screaming and, and, and screaming that kind of stuff because I do know right there in Richmond, excuse me, in Buckingham County, where this pipeline is going in, the regulations that are that are holding this up right now, they have gone three. T it's ten times. They've gone 10 times more in terms of the safety regulations that they had to, but these environmentalist groups are still holding this up. Well, I would say that there are also, there are black environmental justice activists who would probably say to you, on the other side of the coin, there are lots of corporations who get off scot-free and they're polluting water, uh, they're like dumping chemicals. I mean, exactly, they have all sorts of chemicals that lead to uh, asthma, that lead to higher rates of cancer in our communities because of the lack of regulations or very lax re regulations. And under this administration, it keeps getting worse. I mean, I think that, you know, and then the whole coal thing, oh my God, don't get me going on that. But the, 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 and the reason why I say that is because that is a an, an type of energy that, quite frankly, technology, we've moved beyond that. And I would argue that if the coal industry was majority black, in terms of the people who worked in that industry, nobody would, would give a damn about what happened to the coal industry. Nobody but, would give a damn. Nobody but, would tell but, but, them any... But, hold, nobody hold would give a damn about the but, coal but, but hold on. Let's understand the coal is still what produces our most of the it electricity sure. our electricity grid. Well, natural gas, so coal is second at Yeah, yeah so will you, will And you why plug is in? it? Because, because we're propping it up as a government to save those no, jobs no, for those because, people? I mean, when no, you look at all the on. other energy alternatives because that we could transition to Natural that gas. would be cleaner and would produce 
well-paying jobs for people, including black people. That's not true. You know, it, it, but it, but it, hold, hold on. The, yeah. the, 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 the reason we haven't transitioned yet is because we don't have the storage technology, not the production technology. So right now, if you, uh, we don't have the battery capacity to power our civilization. That's why we still use coal. It has to be done continuously. There's no way to store your wind for when the wind turns off. There's no way to store your solar for when the solar comes turns yeah, off. Yeah, we know we that Trump is afraid well, of we, wind. We need to, we need to <laughs> invest in that, but it's, but it's not ready yet. But uh, on that point, let's think about, uh, but let's take it down to a very small level. Uh, Obama era uh, car regulations on fuel efficiency and mileage. Great thing, make cars go longer for less gas. The average price for a car almost, went up almost $5,000 over the last 10 years because of the changes that need to be made. So more poor people are affected by the fact they have lack transportation because they can't get the newer cars. So we got to look at the trickle-down effects and finally compromise the middle position. No one is saying everybody just go pour toxic waste into the river. But what we're saying is we have to take in the net effect that happens to poor people. And you notice it's usually Susan Sarandon and, you know, uh, some other millionaire getting arrested for the climate change protests. They're not worried about what happens to the poor people just because they want to save the seagulls. And, and so I, I had an article, an op-ed that I wrote that um, protesters don't represent us. Because when, you, unfortunately, when they have these hearings, we're at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it often depends on where they're protesting. But I, I, obviously, I would probably say the strongest environmental protest we've seen in recent years that actually included a sizable number of black people was when it came to Flint. Um, mm -hmm. There... There is a distinctive argument that can be made for the lack of jobs or, or jobs being lost when you do in, enact certain environmental policies, but that does not mean that you do not enact them. Um, there's a Netflix special. I don't have anything to do with it, so it's not an endorsement. Um, <laughs> uh, the Devil We Know It is basically the story of how Teflon became a multi-million dollar corporation and how they basically funneled money to an entire community and an entire state because a lot of people were employed by the factories. However, those people who were employed, specifically the women, were having children early and children that died because they literally were pouring toxic fluid, mm -hmm. toxic waste into the river streams that ended up in those people's water, that ended up killing a lot of the wildlife, but also ended up causing severe disabilities amongst the kids as they grew up, the ones mm -hmm. who actually made it, and killed a lot of the ones who didn't. What the corporation decided to do was to stop hiring pregnant women because they noticed that that was a problem. Oh my God. Because their kids were automatically dying, but they were still funneling this into, into the river, and they knew the entire time. It wasn't just the EPA. There were several regulatory bodies that told them they did not care. And when you went and you talked to the neighbors in the community, aside from those who had little children who had disabilities or who died early, they still fought to have that factory there. And they fought to have it there because they said that this was the lifeblood of their community. This is what employed their husbands. So on the one wow. hand, you have thousands of people dying. On the other hand, you have folks who are like, what else are our husbands going to do? Oh, my God. We got to come up with a better way. Yeah, so we should have to choose between being able to survive economically and being able to survive literally. That's crazy. Not a choice I want to make. So late Friday, U.S. District Judge Allison J. Nathan of the Southern District of New York issued a landmark decision that said New York State's refusal to include inactive voters on poll ledgers used in polling places on Election Day violates the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution and the National Voter Registration Act of 1993. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, together with several other organizations, filed suit in federal court in New York on behalf of Common Cause New York in 2017 to restore the voting rights of more than one million inactive New York voters. 
Judge Nathan cited extensive evidence that New York's practice of moving voters to an active status based on a single piece of returned election mail resulted in tens of thousands of voters improperly moved to an active status due to widespread postal service errors. They're going to blame that on the post office. You know that's wrong. Uh, the judge found that the refusal to include the names of an active voters on list used at polling places caused disenfranchisement, confusion, and delay for voters across New York. This is another victory for voters. Oh, my goodness. So, um, you know, it's really interesting to see what's going on with voting rights right now anyway. I mean, it's good to have something that's maybe a victory because actually there have been so many things that has gone wrong, millions of mm -hmm. people all over. I think that this next election will come down to not just turnout, but just the level to which the voting polls have, you know, the voting rolls have been purged in key states across this nation. Well, well this is why the, the issue of voter uh, voter education is so crucial, because we have voter purges. I'm from Georgia. We have a voter purge in Georgia, Wisconsin. But the way that the solution to a voter purge, uh, one is fighting it through the court, but also to educate the electorate that to understand whether or not you're in active status, to uh, look, not just look out for this mail, the best way to not be purged is to vote yeah. in more elections. So I think that's the, the information we have to get out to people, to not just wait for the presidential election to vote. Vote for dog catcher. Vote for county commissioner. Vote for whatever comes up. We have elections all year round, uh, all year round in most municipalities, and we get more people in the habit of voting and not simply waiting for the major elections. Then we have far fewer issues. No, I, I think that absolutely uh, makes sense yeah. because people like to point towards the voter purges in some of the um, some of the hard fought states. But to be frank, voter purges exist in 45 states right now. Um, doesn't matter whether they're conservative or liberal states; they exist. At my home state of Illinois, the place where I vote, we have them as well. Um, they will send you something in the mail. If you haven't voted in the past three, four elections, you're going to get a reminder, hey, you might want to sign up or you might want to go and, you know, check, see if your address and everything is correct because you go next time, you might not be able to, you might not be able to actually vote. So I do think there's something to be said about Americans in general voting beyond just the presidential election and also understanding that just because you registered to vote that one time doesn't mean that when you show up 15 years from now, everything may not be in the clear. Yeah. Maybe it may not be, but you might want to vote a little bit more actively. It's just interesting, though, to me that in America, it just seems like we go out of our way to make it hard for people to vote okay. than we do to make it easy for people to vote. I mean, you know, if I decide tomorrow that I don't want to drive my car for three years, I should still have my license, and I do still have my we license. We are way yeah, too thanks. concerned with voter fraud um, even though it's in less than 1% of cases that it actually happens. And I think that we yeah. have put so much in place to restrict it and to make sure that we diminish it. That Again, this 1% that we never actually see happen anyway. Um, when it comes to voter fraud, we continue to make more and more laws and regulations around it when it's actually not something that is actively happening. Mm. Agreed. And I think the bigger issue is, and I go back to what Robert is, it's education. Folks need to understand that if you don't vote, that's the part you're going to get purged. That's the laws in 45 states. And so we need, we have more power with our vote on local levels than we do on a national level. Mm -hmm. And so if people could, could just get that understanding and get out and vote, like you said, even if it's a dog catcher or whatever it is. But here's the thing. It's, it's a big picture. A I agree with you, but it's the big picture that we don't value and we don't support voting because it's easy to say people should get out to vote. But if you don't have control over your schedule, 
if you are just trying to make it and the only time the poll is open, you have to be at work and you're told if you don't show up, you're going to lose your job. And it's the reason why people don't vote. It's not that they don't care all the time, which, is, which I think is our faulty assumption. If we had voting on holidays, if we had it on weekends, we would have more people voting. And, we and go we out of our way importance. to make it hard for people to vote in this If country. we elevated the importance of races beyond the presidency. Right. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people only show up to vote for the presidency mm -hmm. because they see that as the top priority and the one that's mattering the most. That's when in true. all honesty, and I think that Robert said it earlier, a lot of your daily life is more affected by what's happening at the state and local level than it is at the federal level anyway. And, yeah. and, and, and also, I think that this was a suggestion 20 years ago for the DNC that any candidate for president needs to be putting as much money into voter education, voter registration, yes. voter mobilization as they are into stupid commercials and attack ads. Because guess what? It doesn't matter how many people you uh, tell about Hunter Biden. If people aren't turning up to vote, it really doesn't matter. So we need to get the parties, the stakeholders invested in getting people to the polls on election on election day, early voting, uh, and making sure that we monitor what these new voting regulations are so that we're not showing up uh, on antiquated rules. If, if you're jurisdiction used to have 21 days of early voting and now it's 10. Right. We have to make sure that people know that. Absolutely. So we'll continue the discussion right after the break. You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. You want to support Roland Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roland Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roland Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. Roland Martin Unfiltered. A 25-year-old black woman in Milwaukee reportedly waited more than two hours in the emergency room and then left the hospital to find better care and died. Um, unfortunately, she didn't find that care, it seems. Deshauna Ward went to Fartard Hospital with tightness of breath and chest pain, but her family said she was not under any monitoring while sitting in the waiting room. According to the medical report, hospital staff checked Ward's heartbeat and it appeared normal. The chest x-ray, however, showed an enlarged heart. She was already told about her enlarged heart when her baby died during pregnancy, the medical report stated. The family said she asked to stay in the waiting room after the tests. While she waited to be seen by a doctor, Ward posted on face Facebook, I don't know what they can do about the emergency system at Fordard, but they damn sure need to do something. I've been here since 4.30. Something for shortness of breath and chest pains for them to just say, it's two to six hours w wait to see a doctor. Wow. Like, that is really effing ridiculous. Uh, studies show that black patients, sh such as Ward, aren't getting the same quality of health care as whites. Absolutely. According to a study by the National Center for Biotechnology Information, black pa patients wait for an average of 69 minutes in emergency rooms, while white patients wait 53 minutes. You know, this isn't, unfortunately, it's not new news. No, it's not. No, I think anybody who's been to an emergency room at any point in life 
knows how this story goes, know how, how it works. If it bleeds, it leads. So they do triage care in, in emergency rooms where somebody's coming in with a gunshot, they go to the front of the line. If you say you have shortness of breath, if you say you're dizzy, something along those lines, they put you into the waiting room. I've had but chest pains is supposed It should be, but uh, I think we have to understand that because African Americans are in large part a urban population. We, we live in major cities, not many of us living out in Iowa or New Hampshire. We're mainly in Chicago, New York, D.C., Atlanta, places like that, where you're going to have the longest waiting areas. We have to go back to the concept of community doctors and community hospitals. There, all of our medical care does not have to come from the big med mega hospital downtown. There should be smaller uh, regional and, uh, and neighborhood branches of medical care, uh, independent physicians, family care doctors. We have to put a re-emphasis on that and not overstress the emergency care system, which was, in theory, what Obamacare was supposed to do when it was passed. Right. And it just simply has not happened. This is a more evidence of the brokenness of our health care system. I think it's Robert's yeah. last point. Um, so I had a similar incident right before the holidays. Um, chest pains, bad. I didn't go to the hospital. I went to a community clinic. Mm -hmm. I was immediately, there were like 30 people in there room, I was immediately brought back because it's seen as if you have any type of chest issue, you're going first. Right. Um, they went through, they did the EKG, they took blood, they did everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, turns out I was having a panic, panic attack, not a heart attack. <laughs> and didn't have a heart problem. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but that feels like a it heart, does. heart attack. I didn't know what it was, uh, yeah. but I always read if something's going yeah. on right there, you, you know, did the right don't, thing. Don't, don't you sit did back the right and thing. wait. So I do think that there's something to be said about, you know, the, the value that we need to start placing and the funding that we need to start placing at the community <laughs> level. So you do have more of those clinics available because most of our people when they have an issue like that they're going to go to the hospital right period yeah and to robert's point because we are located in most our urban communities more so than anything else um you are in that waiting room with sometimes 75 80 people more than that i've been to hospitals in chicago they are always packed mm -hmm. and because you know we have a lot of gunshot victims obviously that's going to take precedence over a ton of other things but i'll also say that when it comes to hospitals mm -hmm. sadly you know what else takes extreme precedent Money. what your insurance looks like exactly right so <laughs> depending on what that is regardless of what you come in with you may be in there longer than you probably should be yeah yeah you know and i think the problem though isn't just the weight the reality is we need more black doctors period because there's been a lot of studies that have looked at the level of discrimination, quite frankly, that black patients experience under medical care. So, for example, a black child comes in with a broken arm, a white child comes in with a broken arm, a black child is less likely to even be given pain medicine. You know, uh, we can exhibit the very same symptoms, but we aren't treated as seriously. If, for example, if she was a white man in there with chest pains, he probably would have been seen quicker. You know, there have been studies that have shown the level of bias even among doctors, even upon, among people who have taken the Hippocratic Oath uh, that's shown to black patients. You know, to me, we need to think about how can we make sure that we have more doctors that look like us? My question yeah. here isn't the time, though. It is that they saw that she had an enlarged heart. At yeah. what point do you not treat someone yeah. when they come in with, that's a serious medical condition. Absolutely. Yeah, chest pain. No, I was just going to say chest pains for sure, um, but I was going to add to it, it doesn't matter the age either. Right. Um, my mother-in-law, 83, mm. was in Washington Hospital Center over the holidays. And sat in the emergency room for over three hours. Over three hours. Oh my hours. God! She was dizzy, vomiting, and that kind of thing. But and she wanted to be okay. But three hours in the waiting room. So it, it for an 83-year-old year year woman. woman. And and That's and we also have to address the fact that being people in our community still do not have health insurance. So yeah. Often we but wait she had until insurance. So well, 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 <laughs> not, yeah. not in that case, but but often we wait until it is an emergency situation to get things checked out because we understand that hey, an ambulance ride is going to cost me four thousand dollars and I ain't got it. So I'm gonna drink some cold water and take a nap.
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's, it is a big issue. Yes, it, we need to figure out how to help more people survive in this supposedly the richest country of the world. I want to thank our panel for being here today. Roland Martin will be back tomorrow with a conversation with Bruce Franks, who was the subject of the documentary St. Louis Superman, which was nominated for an Oscar. He'll also discuss Texas Southern University President Austin Lane, who was placed on administrative leave without explanation. We leave you with two interviews Roland did recently. First up, Matthew Cherry, who was also nominated for an Oscar. And next, Bishop Kenneth Omar, pastor of Faithful Central Church in Los Angeles. Until next time, I'm Dr. Avis Jones Weaver. Enjoy your evening. All right, folks, we're joined by, of course, uh, Matthew uh, Cherry, Vashti Harris. First of all, Vashti, really? Black people know Vashti McKenzie, Bishop Vashti McKenzie. You know, uh, all these bash ties we know. My mom is Trinidadian, and in Trinidad, they say Ah, oh, got it. See, yeah. they say Vashti. Exactly, they say Vashti. Now, when they hopped across that pond, it was like, uh, you, you come to America like Vash Tie. Exactly. <laughs> and black people draw it out. Vash Tie. Mm -hmm. So when you, so y'all on the road, how, how often do you hear Vash Tie? I hear lots of different things, but Vash Tie is pretty common. Yeah. I probably call there three different versions myself. So. <laughs> so how did this book originate? You know, we were, we, I had this idea to do a, a animated short film, um, you know, of a dad uh, trying to figure out how to do his daughter's hair for the first time, and the hair ends up having a mind of its own. Uh, <laughs> which I, is real life. Yeah, which is real life. Um, I, I remember seeing all these viral videos of dads, uh, you know, just like playing with their daughters, you know, like playing with them or doing their hair. And, you know, it was kind of like a double-edged sword because obviously it was really great that these videos were going viral. But also, I was like, you know, probably a reason why this is happening is because people aren't used to seeing it. Right. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes that we're not involved in our kids' lives, let alone doing, like, these small, menial domestic tasks with our kids. And, you know, I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to kind of show that we are in our kids' lives and try to, you know, break some of these uh, negative images that we have of ourselves. And then you got involved. How? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So he launched the Kickstarter campaign and reached out to me to create some kind of art so that people would have an idea of what the movie was. And you had previously done children's books? Uh, yeah, exactly. So I write and illustrate children's books, and I also do illustrations here and there for visual development work. And mm -hmm. so that's what he was looking for. And I think it was during the, the process of the Kickstarter campaign that people had suggested and he had mm -hmm. the idea that we should produce it as a picture book. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not technically involved in the movie, but when, when the book got picked up um, by Coquila Books, Books, they reached out to me to ask me if I would consider illustrating the book. So, it, it didn't have to be me, but it worked out that it was. So you did a crowdfund. Yeah. Uh, and uh, how much did you raise? Uh, we raised roughly almost two, three hundred thousand. It was like two hundred eighty-three. And so. were you were you shocked by that? Yeah, yeah. It was crazy, man. It was like the craziest thing I've ever been a now, part now, of. Now the Kickstarter was for. The whole project, the short film, yeah, the short film, yeah. Well, well, one of the gifts that we offered was for a for a picture book. We just didn't know how we were going to figure it out. And then um, <laughs> three or four days into the campaign, uh, Namrata, who is our um, kind of the editor and she's like the head of the Coquila Books, she um, reached out and was like, "Look, I'm, I'm a big fan of this. You know, we're about to start this new division, and I just think it would be really awesome if we could help uh, make the book with you guys." And it was just like that, we had a book deal. Why? Why do you think it? resonated the way it did? You know, I think it was a lot of things. You know, I think timing is really important. You know, I think um, at that time, you know, Into the Spider-Verse hadn't come out. And so, you know, there weren't a lot of images of black 
fathers and daughters or, you know, African-American characters in general and, and, and really any animated feature films. You know, they had Princess and the Frog and the Rihanna movie Home, but at the time, that was really it. You know, maybe a couple of side characters. So, you know, my thing was just if we could do something that centers on a black family but actually have the hair be the thing that's magical and has a mind of its own, you know, we could kind of center it on that. And, um, you know, since then, obviously, Into the Spider-Verse has come out and all these great projects that center us. So, you know, it's, it's really great to see. And I think the more people that see stuff like this and especially kids get to see themselves represented, the better. Uh, Vashti, it is interesting when you talk about black hair, how for non-black people, it's like this thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, this uh, my uh, my godmother talked about being in China uh, and uh, folks just wanted just to touch her hair. <laughs> uh, and then you, you, can, you can ask any number of black women this whole deal, oh my goodness, can I touch your hair? Mm. Like, no, no, you just can't touch my hair. <laughs> you think about the Chris Rock documentary, right. uh, uh, was it was good hair? I think it's good hair, yeah. You think, you think about all of these conversations even just what just recently passed in California, where they've uh, out, uh, where the bill is going through mm -hmm. outlaw, outlaw discrimination when it comes to hair, and it is something that is certainly different and unique mm -hmm. uh, to folks of African descent. Yeah, you know, I illustrate for a living. I draw pictures. I don't have the biggest platform, but I feel like with what I do, I can help normalize these things, normalize and, and create beauty and, you know, infuse a little bit of magic into the everyday life. So, you know, I make books for kids and I want to encourage them to know that there's nothing wrong with the hair that comes out of your head. You can wear it however you like and sometimes it can be magical um, because there are going to be influences from outside that are going to, you know, challenge mm -hmm. everything that we do. But... You know, if, if we can help them feel better about themselves from the ground up when they're that little, I think, you know, that's just one way to start. But I also think it's, it's accepting what is normal. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think back to a number of years ago, um, Earl Graves, of course, founder of Black Enterprise, uh, caused this huge stir when he made it clear. He said, if you want to intern with uh, Black Enterprise, you can't have dreads. Mm -hmm. His whole deal was... This is this is the standard in corporate America. This is in terms of mm -hmm. to understand that standard. Look, when it comes to dress, when it comes to suits and ties and look, and so we're going to train you for that. Uh, we think about um, NBA. It was really Allen Iverson in the Cornwall mm -hmm. to sort of change uh, change that. You had, of course, the brothers in the ABA with the big, huge mm -hmm. afros, Dr. J. But again, it became this whole yeah. thing. Well, no, no, no. In order for us to, in essence, assimilate, mm -hmm. we have to change. I think for African Americans, it, we can go down that road right. where change your hair, change your mm -hmm. dress, change your tone, mm -hmm. change your walk, your talk, all those things. Cam Newton going right. to the pit, good Carolina Panthers, owner saying, "Don't have a tattoo." Right. And, and so. And so I think when you talk about normalizing it, it's saying, okay, that is normal. I got right. my wife on a raise six nieces. Mm -hmm. Hell, I've seen this <laughs> constantly. Right. Matter of fact, I was with my nieces uh, a month ago. It looked just like this. I mean, that's so it's normal. And now what is normal for us now is going out into the world. Mm -hmm. And that has to be accepted as well that you can wear your hair natural if you're a television anchor. Yes. Exactly. You can wear your hat if you're an athlete as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, remember Ricky, Ricky Williams when he had, he was like one of the first NFL players to wear dreadlocks and, you know, people were talking about him, you know, acting like he was Jamaican and all this other stuff and now if you turn on it NFL game... love weed the right, right. amount he did. I mean, let's just, let's just be real, true. real honest. True, 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 true. <laughs> but, um, but, but if you look at an NFL game now, now you see, you know, 
20, 30 players on the field right. will have locks at, at a certain time. So, you know, sometimes it just takes that that one or two people to, you know, really just make this, not, not really a stand, but just be yourself. And change the image. Yeah, and you change the we image. We tried to do that a little bit with the father character, mm -hmm. Steven, in that he's a young man. Who yeah, I see the tattoos. Has, has yeah. the physique of maybe right. a basketball player. Uh -huh. He could be, you know, any kind of athlete. But we're just saying, this is a dad. Or just a brother with muscles. This is a dad that loves yeah. his daughter. Mm -hmm. And why can't a dad look like that? Yeah. Well, first of all, the only reason I say a brother with muscles is because it absolutely drives me crazy. <laughs> uh, anybody who follows me on social media knows this. It drives me crazy when I'm traveling and I have my Texas A&M gear on, <laughs> or uh, if I'm wearing Houston Astros, Houston Rockets, mm -hmm. or Houston Texans, and the first assumption is I play ball. Right. Then the second assumption is, was I a coach? Right. And they go through all this sort of stuff. It's kind of like, okay, when are you going to get to the graduate part? Right, right, like, right. Can, like, when are you going to get around to, <laughs> maybe I just simply went to school there. Right. Uh, and, and so and, and, and so I'm a, I'm a huge, I'm, I'm a huge uh, advocate of try again, trying to get white folks to understand, stop this perception that if you mm -hmm. see somebody black who you think is <laughs> muscular or could play ball, right. don't assume that right. and say, wait a minute, because if you see a white guy, <laughs> you, you don't automatically think, oh, he's a baller. Right. Right. And again, those perceptions come right. in. And I think, I think a lot of people really, as somebody, look, I've been in media since I was 14, right. who really don't understand the power of images. This right. is actually... What you're doing with movies, that's actually America's greatest export. Right. What right. we see around the world. Right. Well, and, and that's the thing, like, you know, images are so powerful. And, like, imagine growing up and never seeing yourself represented. You, you look at magazines, you look at TV shows, you look at movies, and you see people with lighter skin. You see people with just straight blonde hair. And you don't see yourself represented. You know, you come back home and you look in the mirror and, you know, that, that can make you feel less confident about yourself. And so all we're trying to do is just simply say, look, we see you, you know, we think this is a very specific niche, um, but also it's universal in that, you know, th these are things that parents do for their kids when they love them, you know? Mm -hmm. If there's something that they don't know how to do and the kid asks them to, to do it, you know, you're going to try to figure it out. You're going to go online and look up the, some, some videos. You're going to call a friend and try to figure it out. So that's really what the book is about, just showing what parents do for their kids when they don't know what to do and they're trying to figure it out. Have you had to deal with folks who will reject your view of reality? I've never encountered that. You know, I wrote a book called Little Leaders, Bold Women in Black History, so it's just a book filled with the stories of black women. And I've had a few people ask me, well, why would you make a book that is only about black women? And it's not, and you know, a disacknowledgement of anything else in history. It's just saying, like, I want to see these these stories placed all together. So I find yeah, well, that first people... Of all, if anybody actually understands history, they'll realize <laughs> who is actually being left out. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Was, you know, again, if you, I think if you ask the average person to name civil rights leaders, uh, even historical civil rights leaders, they will go... You'll hear may, that Maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll mention Mary McLeod Bethune. <laughs> maybe <laughs> they'll mention Dorothy Hyde. You can forget Septima Clark. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're mentioning Fan Lou Hamer. Uh, not Constance Baker, Constance Baker Motley, not Ella Baker or Diane Nash, any mm -hmm. of those names, because, frankly, it's largely been black men. Left out of the mainstream, exactly. Mm -hmm. But, so, I've found that 
you know, there are a few questions here and there, but mostly people are just excited. I think we're not trying to replace any part of the story. We're just adding more to the tapestry. So in the children's, you know, section I'll of the bookstore, I'm just in the children's part of the bookstore, there's, you know, I saw a great book today about a, a white father and his daughter. And it's like, it's a beautiful, lovely story. And our book could sit right next to that. Mm -hmm. Just another reflection of a different reality. So I find that people are being, are very just supportive of it. And maybe it's because we're making children's content and mm. it's just there to be good and helpful for the world but um, it's a nicer place to be and I'm happy to do it well I think I think what it also does first of all I, I think I think you are playing it down some it's actually way bigger than that mm. because what is happening now is and let's just cut to the chase uh, America doesn't understand anything unless money is attached and um, uh, we were in a out, so we were in a meeting with a, the National Association of Black Journalists. We were mm -hmm. in a meeting with ABC News, and we were meeting with we would be, we, we, we meet with all these different networks mm -hmm. about you know their senior leadership team, and we were meeting with them talking about the black executives or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And at one point, uh, I said, "Well, this is the company that made Black Panther, that made more than a billion dollars." And folks who looked at me in the room, and I said it for a reason, because America responds to money. Right. And, I, and what is happening now is you now have a generation of black folks who will readily say, I'm rejecting that. In fact, I, I, I grew up seeing the children's book and the, and, the, and the white father and the white mother. No, no, no. Y'all got to put some other stuff up here. Mm -hmm. And it is forcing bookstores, it is forcing publishers, it is forcing networks, it is forcing them to understand that America is indeed changing. Mm -hmm. And that if you do not better reflect this changing America, another company will, right. and you're going to lose out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's the great thing about the company that we're with, uh, Coquila Books. Um, you know, Namrata, she is just really focused. It's a, a division of Penguin Random House, and it just focuses specifically on, um, you know, POC authors and people telling their stories. So uh, our book came out on Tuesday. There was another book that came out uh, called uh, My Poppy Has a Motorcycle that speaks to, you know, the Mexican-American experience. And, you know, there's a book coming out later about the Filipino-American experience. And so, you know, th these are all just like really these underserved communities and it's such a niche and we're just so excited to be a part of this family and uh, to be the first book that comes out under that division. How much is the book? Where's that? How much is it? How much is it? Uh, I believe it $16.99 in stores and like $10.99 if you get it on Kindle. Yeah, they, they looking like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm, like, just buy the book. I just look hey, at I it. I think it's, di <laughs> it's different in different stores. Yeah. So we're not sure. But. Okay. Yeah. All right, again, folks, the book is called Hair Love. Yes. Uh, Matthew Cherry, illustrated by Vashti. Harrison. Uh, <laughs> check it out uh, and get it today. Sweet. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thank you Thanks so for having much. us. Right around. Uh, Bishop Kenneth Omar, glad to have you. Glad, glad to, to see you. you. Good to see you. Absolutely, man. absolutely. You. Seen you since the election. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. We had an interesting time. You know what? Very I, I still have not seen the full debate. People keep hitting me up saying, they only put like a clip, and I'm trying. Who do I reach to get it? Because I will. I, I'll find out. Right, because people, people, exactly. people keep telling me, man, I heard y'all two got into <laughs> it, uh, and, and I would love to be able to share You're with Larry. folks. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, let's talk first about um, 
where we are with with, with the black church. But okay. and that's not just the black church, but really what is happening on how here we are in 2019, and the total game has changed. Right. Um, at one point, y'all bought the Forum mm -hmm. in Inglewood. Mm -hmm. You have massive edifices, right. but the reality is, I'm, more and more pastors are going to smaller churches, smaller mm -hmm. locations, multiple locations. Yep. So it used to be the people came to the church, now the church is really going to where the people are. Exactly, which, which is a significant shift, but a necessary shift. Because I think with all of the social media and clicking and Facebooking and Instagram, and it's interesting because we're talking more, but we're, we're communicating less. We, we have less relationships, or we have, although we have more talk. Right. And so I think there's an interesting desire for, and we're finding out in our own church, more of a desire for community, for relationships, you know. And, and the, I, think, I think that um, the, the day of the, at least the mega buildings. Right. And, and I, I have several friends who, when the cameras are not rolling, say, I, I'd never do it again. If I had another... Oh, no, I've, I've actually talked to several pastors yeah. who said... Um, there's, I, I would not do this today. Window, I would yeah. not, because now you, you, the pressure is you're trying to fill 3,500, 4,000, 5,000, yeah. 10,000 seats. Yeah. Well, you know, if you've got, and, and I have friends like this, if you've got six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 seats and you've got 2,000, 2,000 people is a lot of people. Right. But if you got 8,000 empty seats, that's a whole other situation. Well, so. but, but also I think that, and this is the thing that I think for, I mean, as somebody who was born and raised Catholic, left the Catholic Church when I was around 24, 25, okay. uh, and I've uh, attended Baptist churches, Methodist churches, non-denominational church, non churches. Mm -hmm. When you talk about community, I really believe that that's the one thing that a lot of churches are not focusing on, yeah. community slash family. I was in the session, they were talking about size, um, doesn't matter, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And as I was listening to it, this is what, what I didn't hear someone actually say. I didn't hear them. They kept talking about members. But Ralph Douglas West, who was my pastor in Houston, mm -hmm. he said, no, 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 I focus on families. That's good. That's he said, good. if you focus on members, you can have people who are members and they're transient. He yeah. said, well, you want to attract families, and that's, I think, what also community and fellowship comes in. Very significant. And it's interesting because nowadays, even in, in church business, finance, that kind of thing, back in the day, they'd say how many members you have. Now they want to know either how many families, giving units, or how many people show up. I mean, I know several guys who are still using numbers. Of course, most pre preachers count by twos. That's Precisely. another conversation. Yeah. But, but, but I have friends who are using numbers that on paper, you know, I never forget one, one time, um, we, we were in the form, as a matter of fact, and uh, somebody, uh, reporter, someone asked about a mailing list, and my office sent out our database. 22,000 people. Well, I've never had 22,000 members in my life. Right. But, but those are names. And like, like Ralph said, those people may be there, they may not be there. So I think that the, the, the unit that counts is the individual who shows up and the family. And more and more there's a need for, and there's, being, there's a shift for how do we build, actually how do we rebuild our families, particularly the black family. And I think that the day of the black family is gonna come back. I think it's coming, man. I think there are men, I think there are women, I think there are churches who are saying that's where the, that's the gold mine. 
that that's where the future lies. And, and certainly I get it with the millennials and the age thing, but more than the age issue, it's the unit issue and the unit of the family and, and the desire and the need, the necessary need to put the focus there. And that's how you're going to change the community right. and change the neighborhood. How have you tried or how have you shifted or have you shifted your preaching or teaching based upon this being a different generational emphasis? Because previous generations, it was you went to church, you likely went to Bible study. Mm -hmm. It did not matter. That's how you were raised. Mm -hmm. Now we're in a total, total transient world where folks say, I don't have to go on Sunday mm -hmm. because the reality is my, I got 300 sermons on my iPod. Right um, I could literally pick up my uh, computer up and I, I, I can watch a church service at any time I want, at any moment I want. So I don't have to do that thing. That's good. Which is interesting because in a sense that is, that is anti-community or counter-community in other words. I, I can do that in my home and, and I have members who do it, who do that at their homes on their computer or whatever uh, and they don't come to the, to, to the, uh, uh, to the building. Uh, I, I have a friend, I have a friend who's online, online campus. I have a friend who's online campus raises more money than they do to people who come. Mm. I have a friend who raises $100,000 a week from people who don't even step foot in that building. Which is interesting because on the other, on one hand, you're saying people want community. On the other hand, they're watching, watching your program, eating, drinking coffee in, in their pajamas. But, you know. but, okay, so let's, let's deal with that. So, if the church is advancing this idea of community, what that also now means is that uh, preachers, board of trustees, church leaders are now going to have to understand the technology community. Yeah. So how do I create community? And so in essence, if you have those, if those folks on there, so you, you have your Facebook, you have your YouTube, you have your Periscope, you have Twitter, you have all these different uh, social media. I, it was a Bible app. All of a sudden, I start getting these friends requests on the Bible app. And I'm like, well, hold up. I ain't download the Bible app. I said, I got, I, I got friends requests over here. But the reality is that's all the people who have the app. That's a community. And so the challenge now also is, okay, how do churches now think like technology companies to build communities online? And that's what we have to learn. That's, where, that's part of the shift we need to make. And, and I think to ignore that, is to ignore the possibility of expanding the kingdom and reach. I taught a, a, a seminar on, on preaching about two months ago. And in that seminar, I was saying uh, to the, the young theologues, the young preachers, pulpiteers, I said, you know, I am on my fifth preaching style. I'm, I'm, I was introduced in Chicago as an OG, so I guess I'm one of mm -hmm, the old, old mm -hmm. dogs now, you know. And so, but but I've, I've shifted. I've shifted, I'm on my fifth style now. I mean, the things that, that the people, guys who were my mentors, you know, Spalding and Holly, it, it still works in some places, but, but, the, but the group that I'm trying to reach mm -hmm. and the group that I'm called to reach, mm -hmm. it's a different approach, number one. It's a different content. Mm -hmm. It's a different approach. Mm -hmm. It's a different content. Right. How, I, I have to ask myself, how portable is what I'm saying? Right. How transferable? It's what I'm saying in this building going to help that person who, 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 who joins us in worship every Sunday from London. How am I going to help that person? What am I doing here? Which means now there's got to be a different focus because the original focus was come, come, come. Come to the building. Come hear my choir. Come hear my preacher. Come, come, come to the building. Which is interesting because Jesus never said come. He said, he said go. 
Right, and, and that's the piece where I remember um, there were people who, I was one of the early adopters to social media. And all the number of people who, what are you doing uh, tweeting in church? And I said, I remember the times so I probably may have had 300,000 followers. Now I've got about 520 plus thousand just on Twitter. Wow. I got a million on Facebook. And I said, do you realize that when I seen one tweet, I said, at that time, I said, it was going to more than a million people. Yeah. I said, I don't know who's watching social media in that tweet. Mm-hmm. I said, secondly, I said, I take copious notes of sermons. I said, please tell me what's the difference between me writing my notes and literally tweeting a sending out a stream of tweets which is the exact same as writing my notes i love it i love it it's the same and your notes are going further than that guy in that building and in fact what we what i what i used to i used to actually i would type my notes in my notes section and then as soon as church was over i would immediately upload the whole sermon notes to my blog which would then go out well, then I said, well, you know what? People are not necessarily going to read just the whole blog. So I just said, I'm just going to start just tweeting. And, and, and these people were getting all upset. Matter of fact, I was in a church and the pastor got upset. And I had to check him. I'm like, do you understand yeah. that all these folks yeah. were seeing it? Now you bring in live streaming. Right. So now I can then say, if you want to watch the sermon, go here. Josephine Baker's, Josephine Baker's uh, signature song was The Times They Are a Changing. And, and then there's, there's a passage in scripture that talks about a tribe in Israel. And the most significant thing we know about that tribe is they had an understanding of the times. And if we, church, pastors, leaders, whatever, if we don't understand that these times are a changing, this train will have left us. The, 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 the people that we could help, we'll never reach because we don't know how to communicate to them. We don't, right. we, we, we don't know how to have a message that goes beyond these four walls. And, and, and if we don't, again, we're gonna die on the vine. And, and, and some of the, some of the uh, uh, research, et cetera, is, is saying one of two things. They're saying uh, church attendance is going down. Right. Others are saying it's, it's the greatest time for the church ever. The church has the greatest opportunity. But it's not going to have the opportunity if it still operates the way it did down in Mississippi. Right. And, and, and no, no problem, Mississippi. Right, no, no, right. <laughs> right. No but in terms, but, in terms of in, in, in rural areas, down home. It's a culture that has to change, man. And, and that culture inside the church must change in order to reach the culture outside the church. How do you deal, how do you deal with people who say, okay, you said you're in fifth preaching style. How do you deal with people who say, no, no, but, but I, need, I need you to change what you talk about mm-hmm. because... Uh, you have uh, you have people who are single mm-hmm. who don't want to hear messages about shacking up. Right. You've got people uh, who are gay and lesbian mm-hmm. who do not want to hear uh, certain passages of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You got people who say mm-hmm. that those passages are wrong. Mm-hmm. You got people who say, "Oh no, women should be able to preach and mm-hmm. teach." Uh, and so, how do you ensure that how the world defines? Um, how, how, how the world views things, how do you ensure that, no, no, this is what has to be taught inside, not the world changes the church, but the church changes the world. How do you grapple with that? You know, Jesus, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw. If, I, if, if you lift, I'll draw. 
So the church lives in this tension between lifting and drawing. And, and, it, and it, will, it will often have to make a choice. It will have to make a choice between it will lean too far to the lifting, the orthodoxy, the, 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 the you know, non-negotiable, whatever, on this side, to the point where it's not attracting anybody. Mm -hmm. And the church is going to die, the message is going to die, et cetera. On the other hand, if we flip way to the other side, then at some point we're going we're gonna to be asking, well, what, what are we going to say? What are we going to say? So I think we have to live in that tension. I think, I think the reality of where Scripture is and what Scripture says, it's like the message cannot change but how do you change the myth? How do you present that? How, how do I, I mean, I, I, this coming Sunday, I'm doing a thing on, 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 on David, and, and I'm talking about how this great man was an adulterer, was a liar, you know. Um, what does God do with people who are adulterers? Whatever other term you want to use. Um, so I can't, I can't talk this judgment without talking this grace. Right. I better get to the grace or, I'm all, or we all out of here, you know. But so so it's, the, it's the tension that I live in of not either or but both and. Got it. And that's tough sometimes. It's a tough call sometimes, man. But, 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 but it will always put me in that place. Now, which way am I going to lean? This way or am I going to stay in the middle and try to do both? And sometimes you'll hit it and sometimes you'll miss it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, all the folks who watch do understand that when I'm in Los Angeles uh, and I get there in time, uh, that's the church I will drop by because, one, it also helps. they close to the airport. Right in the airport. So when it's like I can land, it's like, oh, no, I'm not far at all from, get, from getting there in time. But you know what? And, and this is not a pat on the back, but it is, though. Your, your, your perspective of media, of journalism, et cetera, um, you, you, you walk that line, man, and, and, and it's a gift. It's a gift, and, and you and I, I know, because I'm on the outside, you know, I know other journalists, et cetera, who are, who are unapologetically on one side or the other, and I get that. But you, you have a unique, a unique gift of being the voice of black America, not monolithically, but as complex as it is, as diverse as it is, and you're fair. You appreciate fair, it. You're fair, man. I appreciate it. Well, always good chatting with you. Bless you, my brother. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Stay on the wall. All right. God bless you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.